Hello and welcome to what will be the concluding uh, dialogue in this pilot series of uh, Reboot Dialogues. Uh, we started in, uh, in October, on the 26th of October, uh, with the case for a world security community of democratic nations and have since looked at uh, destructive global competition, European federalism, and last week at the Bildung Rose model of a functioning society by Lene Rachel Anderson. Um, we've decided to conclude with today's dialogue this pilot series because it's been an enormous learning curve, not least on my part, um, but also we now know what it looks and feels like uh, to, to run Reboot as a live show and there's so much we can do to improve it. Um, we will change the interface, the, the, if you like, the view experience will, will improve, will get better. Uh, we also have getting a better sense of the kind of topics we want to cover and we want to become more proactive and in inviting people from all around the world uh, to take part uh, in these dialogues. Um, so we will come back uh, with Reboot 2030 on the 1st of February uh, next year, which again is a Tuesday. We, we stick to that Tuesday schedule every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central European time. Um, so on the 1st of February next year, we continue with hopefully what will be a block of 10 new reboot dialogues. Um, and um, we already have some really interesting people, um, I wouldn't say lined up, but uh, a sort of Sort of on the radar who expressed great interest in participating. So hopefully with some luck, it'll be a really um, informative and hopefully also some entertaining uh, series of dialogues. Um, the intention then is to really in a way mirror the, uh, the, the British sort of academic system where you have three terms. Um, and in each of those terms, we would have uh, 10 weeks and we would have one uh, repo dialogue each week. So hopefully next year, starting on the 1st of February, we'll have uh, a block of 10 uh, dialogues, then a short break, then another block of 10 dialogues, and then a summer break, and a final concluding block of 10 dialogues uh, in the autumn. And hopefully we will be able to take this through all the way to 2030. So, um, so that's where we are and that's how we move forward but let me now um, introduce our uh, today's guest uh, Youngjin Khoi. Um, he is head of research uh, in uh, impact investing at Finio AG uh, and Finio uh, are special in the sense that they're not-for-profit so this is not your kind of um, run-of-the-mill management consultancy although they are very much management consultants uh, and investment consultants but they are coming to this from a very different Angle, um, Young Yin. Um, he, um, he, as I said, he is involved in impact uh, investing. He, um, and and what exactly that means, he will tell us in a minute. Before he joined uh, uh, Finio, he was a senior strategy consultant with Monitor, um, a global strategy, or you know, some would say, sort of a boutique consultancy, but quite large and with global reach, um, and hyper-commercial, and before then he was with 3M um, as an investment manager within their corporate venturing unit. So uh, uh, Yang Jin really has come from a classic finance uh, business background, but has moved across in what I would consider a far more life-affirming uh, arena. Um, and he's also become a little bit of an activist, or I should say really quite an activist. So um, today he will um, introduce this notion of carbon price, pricing and what exactly carbon 
pricing is and why this is so important, he would, of course, also explain to us. But the idea is, is that in a world that is really spiraling out of control in terms of climate change, we need to have far more effective means of bringing down, of decarbonizing our atmosphere if we want to have any chance of reaching a livable level of global warming. Um, carb pricing is a highly effective method of contributing to that, um, but it also has its downsides. And politically, it is probably quite hard to push through because it means higher prices. So if you put a price on carbon emitting products like petrol and others, then people have to pay more for, for these goods. But on the other hand, if you were, and this is what he's talking about, if you were to introduce a a climate income. In other words, if you would redistribute a substantial portion of the money you take in through the, um, the carbon pricing scheme and redistribute that uh, equal shares to all, then actually that could somehow cushion. Uh, in fact, um, what Young uh, uh, Lin will show us, uh, you know, low income groups would actually come out with more money at the end of the month. Uh, and of course, it would be a way of really sustainably driving forward a decarbonizing agenda. So I can see that uh, Yong Yin has, uh, is waiting in the waiting room. So do uh, bear with me and let me admit him in. Okay, there we go. So let's see how this goes. Is he coming on board? Yes, there he is. Yong Yin, are you there? There you are, hi, I'm glad. Hi. I'm glad you, you're here. Yesterday, we still spoke German, and today we are speaking English. Um, to, for you, I don't know, do you speak much English in your everyday life? So-so, uh, oh, no, not so much, actually, although I have several colleagues, uh, not not within my work context, but outside of it, in the, in the climate uh, context, where I speak awesome. English oftentimes. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of sort of warming up time to get into, into the language. Um, I said a few things about, well, about, about Reboot first and, and where we're headed, but then also uh, a very short introduction about you, that you've come from quite a, what I call sort of a classical MBA finance business background, uh, working for Monitor, you know, a big sort of icon within the kind of competitive uh, strategy world, uh, and then moving across to 3M, I guess, leveraging some of your strategy expertise into investment banking, corporate venturing, but at some point you have had enough of it. And the sort of the, the sort of purely commercial approach uh, didn't really kind of wasn't enough for you anymore. And so you you took a different route and you joined a phenial, which is, as if I understand it, a not-profit consultancy, um, advising both on managerial and on strategy issues, but also on investment. It's not Mm. Almost, yes. I mean, the focus of Fineo is impact uh, measurement, management, impact orientation in general, uh, with, with emphasis on philanthropy, you know, nonprofits, foundations, uh, but also including uh, investors. I mean, philanthropy and investing oftentimes is not too far uh, away from each other. Yeah. That's right. So you have come from really a quite a sort of a, a, sort of a commercially profit-driven environment, uh, efficiency-driven environment, and you have moved from that productivity-driven environment, and you've moved from that uh, to a very, very different world, a very different environment. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background and, and what that journey looked like and, and, and why you have ended up doing what you're doing right now. Uh, sure, yeah, happy to do so. I mean, um, so uh, uh, I think it 
you can say it, maybe it started with the, the first important choice you have to make after you finish school, what to study. And uh, uh, at that time, it was 1998, I was, we were told, you know, that uh, engineering is uh, so important and <laughs> providing safe jobs and so on. And I went for engineering, uh, mechanical engineering in Aachen. Um, and then also uh, studied uh, uh, in parallel in Maastricht, uh, international business studies. And that's actually where a couple of courses I found very valuable uh, in, you know, that was one on system dynamics. There was one in global, on global inequality, uh, quite uh, enlightening. And also during uh, my, my mechanical engineering study, I, I, whenever I had some time, I visited uh, some, some philosophy ethics courses. And uh, actually uh, there was, even in the beginning, something that uh, subject that interested me a lot, uh, but I, you know, uh, took a different path, uh, and I uh, wonder how my life would be if I had, uh, you know, studied uh, philosophy, you know, political philosophy, <laughs> or ethics. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty glad where, that I ended up where I am now, and I couldn't have planned it. And um, uh, when I was with with Monitor, I also uh, pursued my my passion, you know, in a way by uh, signing up for this politics, philosophy, and economics uh, study in uh, at LMU, you know, uh, which was also um, something that I enjoyed a lot, even though it didn't provide me with, you know, uh, uh, credentials that I would use, uh, could use in a corporate context, you know, it's really sort of personal development in a way. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and then, and then uh, when I was with, uh, in a corporate VC world, what I found interesting was that we didn't purely invest, invest for financial return, but for strategic value too, and so for, for non-financial uh, outcomes. You know, then we thought about how to how to measure, how to manage uh, for these outcomes. And uh, so when I uh, became more interested in, in impact investing, it's uh, you know there's some similarities how to measure non-financial. Uh, Absolutely, but all the while, I mean, just to dramatize it a little bit, all the while the planet was heating up around us, and I suppose yeah. the whole to the climate change debate kind of begun, certainly in the last five to 10 years, mm. began to move mm. more and more into the foreground and started to kind of, in a way, challenge people's thinking and also people's actions. And yeah. how, how did that kind of influence you or how did that kind of yeah. make you kind of, did it have an impact on your trajectory or? Surely. Um, so, I mean, already uh, shortly after I, I finished studying. So I think there was one influential, or several actual influential uh, books. Uh, but um, uh, there's uh, one by uh, Erich Fromm, "To Have or To Be." <laughs> it's a classic, uh, really good. Uh, there was also the Corporation that came out, you know, by Joel Bacon, yeah. uh, who analyzed uh, the, you know, the, the if, if corporations were persons, you know, at that time, early, I think, end of, uh, you know, early two thousands or even before that. Uh, uh, and uh, so that they would be characterized as, uh, you know, sociopaths by, you know, due to their reckless behavior. But, um, and then a new, uh, recently a new book came out, The New Corporation, where uh, he, you know, kind of did an update. Now, um, uh, but so I was already, uh, you know, skeptical of, uh, you know, the, the let's say, uh, purely uh, profit and maximizing kind of capitalism at that time. Um, and I, I, I followed the early uh, COPs, you know, and the early negotiations uh, for climate treaties. Uh, and I assumed 
um, early, it was early uh, 21st century, right? I assumed that over time reason would prevail, we would find a solution, but it was, was quite shocking to realize, you know, maybe two or three, actually three years ago that we have, we have massively uh, failed to transform or decarbonize our economic systems. Uh, and that somehow, you know, much more uh, is needed. Uh, so, so I would say uh, I wrote my thesis on politics, philosophy and economics in 2012 uh, about the um, limits to growth, you know, in a way uh, and uh, game theory. Um, so I was quite aware of the, of the challenge but it was still frustrating to see over the past uh, 10 years uh, how little has changed, even though the urgency, you know, the, the, um, the climate science also has evolved a lot. So it's um, uh, bizarre, you know, that we haven't seen much more, you know, much I mean, if determination. We, that's right. I mean, if, if you were to kind of use it a bit more sort of business lingo, you could sort of say that uh, we have massively sort of overstated if you like the kind of uh, one side of the balance sheet yeah we've been massively been focusing on 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 income and on profit maximization but we have kind of in a way neglected or even kind of excluded liabilities and costs that if we were to include them we would be looking at very different profitability profiles mm -hmm. you know across industry uh, and and also across services increasingly yeah. Um, and, and so I guess what, what, what we're saying is, is that we have to, it's not so much that we have to move away from profit maximizing doctrine, although some would think that would be a good idea, but that's actually not at the core of your thinking, is it? I think what you are saying is, is it is time that we really account for all the costs. And if we can then still make a fair profit, so be it, and that's great. So we're not against yeah. making a profit, but we do want, in all fairness, to be, you know, cost to be included. Is that a fair mm. statement? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, uh, in a, in a, in a, with maybe some 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 caveats, but uh, um, you know, the analysis that right now uh, that we're seeing a massive market failure, you know, because uh, external costs are not internalized in market prices, is um, is persistent. Has been, and this is the amazing thing, you know, for thirty years perhaps uh, we it become more and more it became more and more emergent, and actually for the past. 15, 10, 10 years, maybe it's really, you know, uh, relatively certain that there is a huge market failure, but early, early, you know, uh, uh, I think early environmental movements already pointed this out, you know, 30 years ago. And so we have, we have this uh, insufficient response to this uh, for that, for that time period, but yeah, but totally right. And it's about the correlation between profitability and uh, real world outcomes and, uh, you know, positive, negative uh, environmental and social impacts. That is the, the problem and the markets are not supposed to be that uh, dysfunctional and self-destructive, one could argue, right? So if you can correct uh, and uh, create a uh, you know, realign markets so that uh, profitability correlates with impact, with positive impact and negative impact in the right way. Um, I think then we can even, you know, you know, uh, the Friedman doctrine, right? He wrote this this paper about the responsibility of uh, of corporations. And at that time when he wrote it, uh, I think it was seventies, uh, you know, late seventies, uh, uh, last century. Uh, at that time there wasn't such a big, you know, the market failure wasn't that apparent. And I'm sure that even Friedman would have argued that uh, we have to change the legal framework and the way uh, markets, uh, you know, are incentivized. 
And if that if that is if that could be changed, then we could even you know I think even Friedman would be happy, or uh, in a way we could still pursue the quest for uh, you know optimal returns and profits without. Uh, Having all these negative, uh, you know, impacts. So, that, that, that's uh, right. So, so I guess uh, sort of leading on to uh, the topic of today's talk mm-hmm. um, is that um, what you're proposing is very, very much within the kind of idiom of markets. So you're not suggesting we should kind of, you know, sort of uh, regulate outside of markets or impose some kind of sort of, if you like, market ignorant kind of instrument, but you're sort of saying we need to somehow rectify the kind of failure that exists within markets. So this notion of carpet pricing, Mm -hmm. in a way, what it does, I mean, I'm talking from a sort of a layman's perspective, and you can correct me on this, but what carpet pricing really says is we have to, um, we have to add, if you like, we, we have to kind of add to the cost side of it. We have to make carbon more expensive because we're not really the market by in itself doesn't really take account of our costs. So if you raise the cost of, uh, of, of, of producing carbon or producing carbon heavy goods uh, and services, and then we have to factor that in. So, and that the hope goes, um, that would then somehow rebalance uh, that, that kind of like uh, uh, equation. Isn't that a fair way of putting it? Indeed, it would uh, correct for this this market failure. It is in fact what uh, what economists have been um, proposing for for a long time, right? And we have seen it work in other contexts too. Um, I mean, the, in the in the, uh, but I would say it's a pragmatic approach from from my personally. You know, I think uh, it's um, has a lot to do about uh, um, you know uh, how what we value, how we uh, there are different types of of um, capital. There's a different definition of success. There are limits to growth, but um, in the the climate crisis um, is providing us with a very narrow window of opportunity. And so uh, I thought about what's the fastest way to transform our economic system. And um, uh, there is a lot to say about, um, you know, uh, what, how do we measure uh, progress? It's not GDP, right? It's very, very insufficient measure of progress. And it's also cannot be uh, perpetual growth, you know, on a, on a limited finite planet. Uh, but in the near term and midterm, uh, the fastest way to transform markets is to um, use market forces and redirect them into the right direction, you know, where they're supposed to work. You know. Of course, there is, uh, there is a problem, isn't there, with, uh, if you like, pricing carbon, mm. because it's a kind of, it's a sort of a tax, isn't it? Mm. And, um, and if, you, if you do that, and I'm just thinking, for example, value added tax, which is another kind of sort of consumer tax, if you like, um, when you do that, you have a, a tax system that isn't progressive. So if you are poor, you know, a much larger portion of your income will go on consumable products that by definition consume carbon or produce carbon like petrol, if you have to drive to work and so forth. So one of the kind of key arguments could be from a sort of, if you like a a social justice perspective um, that, you know, taxing uh, carbon will hit the poor uh, much harder than, than the rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the solution that, uh, that you and others put forward to address that issue is this notion of a climate income. Mm-hmm. Um, could you yeah. just maybe explain yeah. that idea within the context of social justice? Yeah. Uh, so 
I think there's different uh, challenges when we th think about carbon pricing. Uh, and, and it's regardless whether we uh, price carbon through fees or taxes or through uh, emissions trading, you know, and limited rules uh, to emissions. But the, the effect is the same that uh, products with particularly high emissions become more expensive. And they are supposed to, to become more expensive because we want to change uh, behavior, you know, consumer yeah. behavior, producer behavior. The beautiful thing about carbon pricing is that it doesn't just address the supply side or the demand side, but it's supposed That's to address right. both sides. So, so in the end, uh, products and services will become more expensive if they, you know, actually have these damaging side effects in the long term. So, uh, and but uh, we have to be careful about how um, how we go about this uh, transition and how, most importantly, we can ensure the support. Uh, from the general public, right? Uh, so in, we have this democracy that is really important. Yes, indeed. indeed. We have a, we have time pressure on the one hand, really, and it's it's becoming you know uh, uh, more urgent every year. On the other hand, uh, we have this inertia. So populations need time to adjust and change their behavior, and this will be. So on the one hand, uh, the carbon pricing mechanism should be well designed so that. Uh, prices increase at a steady rate or that they are predictably uh, high. So they don't have to be high from the beginning, right? But they have to be, you know, they have to have this, this visible trajectory so that you can plan ahead. So, you know, 10 years, it's going to be effect, really You know, we have to tighten the screw over time that we actually get the change yeah. behavior that so we want little to see. kind of uh, leave some room for transition. But even then, uh, the carbon pricing is in effect ineffective if it doesn't, provide strong enough incentives, right? So it has to be, uh, but on the other hand, um, with the carbon pricing mechanism, the, the what, what you have to consider is also that uh, low carbon products and services uh, become much more attractive and competitive, right? And so they need to be available in sufficient supply as well, right? And there's also some tradition needed to scale scale up uh, production in, in this regard. So, uh, but the, the key reason why you, so what what it is what we're talking about climate income is we generate revenues you know uh, through uh, um, pricing carbon and uh, the idea is to redistribute a substantial share of these revenues to the consumer households right uh, uh, fairly equally you know maybe by head count or you know uh, family size and so on but in a in a in a way so that uh, uh, households are uh, supported financially to uh, better cope with the price increases and adjust their behavior. Right? Okay, so so let, just to get this very clear, so um, people like pay for the, uh, the if you like the additional um, the, the additional the markup uh, um, uh, on on the carbon through the products they they buy and the services they buy, um, but they get this money back. Now, but uh, if I understand you correctly, um, everybody gets the same amount. So it's not based on consumption. It's not the more carbon I consume, the more money mm. I get back. Isn't that correct? Mm. Well, it's the simplest way to redistribute in an equitable way, right? Um, so uh, in a way, it's similar to universal basic income. I mean, we will talk about this a bit, right? But it's, um, uh, I think, the, the uh, for example, um, um, uh, as a you know, every household or every person you know in a household gets uh, annually uh, you know three thousand euros. I mean, depending on the the price level, how much revenues is generated, if it's going to be redistributed. But if you uh, there's several models you know that show that uh, the lower 
income household groups this, uh, they benefit disproportionately right for them this kind of amount is um, a significant increase of their disposable income and in fact a more than you know more than half maybe even two thirds uh, should be better off even financially you know they get more every year then they they have to pay more through price increases and if they change their behavior they have even more left right so um that's right so if i for example um you know if, if i can't afford to have a big suv car which is beyond my means because i don't have the income i then also don't have the petrol bill i don't have to pay so but i still get the same money as my neighbor who drives that big suv and of course will now may have yeah. to use this yeah. additional income to pay for the petrol or the increase in price of the petrol. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's it's like you know because you are you know consuming less, but you're getting the same money as yeah. anybody else. You're re relatively speaking, yeah. uh, you're you're benefiting disproportionately. Um, isn't that isn't that correct? Lower income households tend to have also a lower carbon footprint. They'll be you know uh, less affected by price increases, relatively speaking. Uh, but still, you know, you have they they have uh, different challenges. They cannot uh, in uh, simply uh, change their behavior overnight. Maybe there's some, and this is maybe a challenge indeed. There's there are some investments needed, you know, uh, uh, to buy an electric vehicle. Um, so this is why uh, carbon pricing in itself is uh, probably not enough, uh, for certain not enough. You know, there's a whole. Uh, a broad range of, of regulatory measures and uh, you need substitutes just so one tool of right. the toolbox for example what would be really helpful in addition to carbon pricing is um, smart you know uh, public financing support so that you can you know make these kind of expenditures uh, at, uh, at zero interest rate for example um, and then uh, yeah becomes more affordable this way, you know, if you're a house owner, uh, you want to put photovoltaics on top, you know, of your house, plus an electric vehicle, plus, um, you know, install a heat pump, for example, and all these, uh, ideally, uh, without, uh, you know, financing costs, it becomes much more attractive to do so, and much more feasible, right? And it does, but the, the interesting thing, of course, is, again, there's a balance of this drug, isn't there? So, um, because if the, the cake is whatever size it is, and I can either redistribute that to the general population, or I can say I only distribute for the sake of the argument one third of the cake and two thirds of the cake I use for these other measures. And yeah. of course, you know, there must be, you know, in a way, because of course, as a politician, I'll be thinking, that's great. You know, I can promise all these additional <laughs> services, all these kind yeah. of inducements, but of course, the money needs to come from somewhere. The, well, the challenge is the, um, you know, the climate income needs to be uh, sufficiently high to compensate or more than compensate uh, price increases. So there's not too much, uh, you know, room for other uses. I know that um, in the context of carbon pricing, there are various uh, proposals for how to use the revenues, you know, for, you know, payroll, uh, tax incentives, you know, or, uh, you know, for green investments and, um, green, you know, uh, development corporation spending. I mean, it's all very much needed, but uh, I would argue needs this, this, you know, especially uh, infrastructure investment is needed, but it needs to come from other sources. You know, we need this um, uh, climate income just to ensure that the, the population is supported. And we're not talking just about the poorest households, you know, it's also affecting starting to affect middle-income households once the price levels reach, you know, inc prices increase and prices have to increase at a steep curve. 
So how can you maintain that you know, support if prices reach significant levels? And you know, without the climate income, uh, I, I think it's, it's predictable that there will be too much you know, resistance, frustration, and you know, yeah. So, so just to, this is, I think, the main reason why we're using price income revenue, price revenues uh, for this purpose is so critical. And um, this is a whole other discussion about how to mobilize the funding we need, you know, to make all these investments that are so, 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 so much needed, you know. But there's a smart way to use uh, public spending. There's a, a certain fiscal space that I think is underutilized. I mean, this we can have another discussion probably about uh, so, how to right. so mobilize a, that funding. That's right. So there's an interesting argument that we said we need to kind of draw. We need to have almost like a firewall. Uh, you know, we have to have to have a clear separation of, of purposes, if you like. So what we're sort of saying is, is yes, we need to have multiple substitution effects where people substitute high carbon generating goods for low carbon generating or no carbon or indeed carbon consuming goods. Uh, so we need we need to have that substitution. We need to shift people from a sort of like carbon producing destructive kind of path uh, to, uh, to another path. Um, so, and, and for that, we need to kind of, you know, provide inducements. We need all sorts of things. We need to kind of support the kind of a greening of the economy and all the rest. That can't be the sole responsibility or even at all the responsibility of the, of the carbon income because the purpose of the carbon income yeah, is very specific. The, the yeah. purpose of the carbon income is to say, we need to help those who cannot afford those price hikes um, to basically somehow either change their behavior or to subsidize those price hikes. Um, and um, otherwise, it's like, you know, turkeys voting for Christmas, as you say, you know, as, as the saying goes, you, you won't get in a democracy people sustainably over long periods of time to vote for policies that make them poorer. Um, because it's, 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 it's democratically very difficult, even if it's sort of seen as important, mm. it's very hard to sustain that. And it's also a very hard case for politicians to push because they want to get reelected. Well, in a context where the level of urgency awareness is um, still relatively limited, I would argue. I mean, you can see the shift in the, you know, different um, uh, Almost, maybe I would say levels of consciousness, or you know, so people who understand the necessity to, um, you know, uh, to make a transition in the personal lives, and actually for many people it's beneficial. You know, it's so there's a guy, there's a, Saul Griffiths is making the argument that it's even for the economy. It's it's actually hugely beneficial. You save you save uh, expenses. You know, every year you, you create jobs well-paid, decent jobs and so on. Uh, but aside from that, um, I think the, the level of urgency awareness of the kind of responsibility that our generation has, you know, for the future, for future generations is still not as um, highly, uh, uh, you know, widespread as it should be, right? So I think this will change over time, but it's not quickly enough. And so in the meantime, we need to um, ensure uh, support uh, through other means, you know, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so how long has this notion of a well, carbon pricing has been around for quite some time, as you said, in various guises. Um, but um, the the idea of a climate income is not so old. It's it's a more recent idea, I believe. 
Can you tell me a little bit about how this idea came into being? You know, what you know, who the the organizations or, or maybe even the political parties mm. are that support that notion, and what does it that the state of affairs is when it mm. comes to uh, climate income? Is there much resistance in the world of politics, in the world of business? Mm. How is this being looked at at the moment? Yeah. Well, so so uh, the history is certainly. Uh, uh, interesting, and I, have, and I have to say, I, d I don't know it uh, too well. So my my context, how I came to, uh, you know, this um, this proposal is through the uh, Citizens Climate Lobby (CCL), an organization that is based in the U.S. Uh, uh, wasn't not sure quite how many years ago it was formed, but um, initially it started in the U.S. It was also supported by James Hansen, you know, famous climate scientist, yeah. and uh, um, and they they also went on to together um you know um bipartisan post support right and so it's something that usually appeals to uh, both uh, political parties in the us uh, today it's uh, you know it has also changed a bit but um, still uh, and um uh, i think i think that that was uh, one of the early uh, you know proposals and activist organizations arguing for it uh, there's um uh over time, they expanded. So they also formed a German uh, group and in other countries, uh, there's a European uh, group. Uh, so the, the, the general idea is, of course, you know, it has to uh, be applied um, in, in different regions in the world. And um, uh, I think that there also has been a lot of resistance or it's not easy to implement um, a sufficiently steep carbon pricing scheme. You can, we can see that, you know, uh, uh, emissions trading in the EU, in the EU uh, for, for many years didn't really work uh, or, or reach price levels that are sufficient. That's now changing as well, or it's increasing at a certain uh, rate at least, uh, but globally carbon pricing is still totally um, underutilized, right? And But we can see increased momentum, especially in recent years, especially the uh, for example, the IMF is promoting carbon pricing a lot, right? And and its uh, studies or policy packages that include carbon pricing as well as public spending. So the combination matters a lot as well. Uh, so I, I think the general acceptance uh, is, is has increased and is, is continuing to increase. It's still um, uh, politically a challenge, but maybe also because uh, the, the concept of a climate income, so not just carbon pricing, but in combination with the climate income is not... Uh, very common indeed. Um, uh, but what I can refer to is the, the econ statement. So the statement of economists in the US that also yeah. support carbon pricing and they also argue in favor of climate income, for example. I mean, it's my sense that you almost can't have one without the other. It's, it's, it's you know, it, there's, a, there's a real block. I mean, Actually, certainly yeah. uh, it would be very hard to take that into a kind of a, a party political manifesto for an election so to say, well, vote for higher energy prices you know uh, yeah. and, and you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult but on the other hand if if you have it as a package then then, then you could make make it work there is mm. one thing which i find interesting and um is is that uh, it's of course it's not carbon income wouldn't be means tested and um and anything that isn't means tested be it a universal basic income or would it be be it a climate income is always viewed with suspicion um that there is a sort of a sufficient level of understanding that this isn't about giving money to people who don't need it but this mm. is about statistically speaking sort of rebalancing the 
the playing field in a, in a way. It's a hard, it's not easy to communicate, but I think that's one of, from my understanding, mm. one of the hurdles. Um, this isn't money for nothing. There's a clear return on Ooh. this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's one thing. And the other, to, to, you know, with the, with the means testing. And the other thing, and I, I guess this kind of goes back to sort of, you know, what people refer to as the Protestant work ethic. Uh, this is something people haven't necessarily worked for. So, if, you know, if, if, you, if you work hard and you earn good money, then you, you earned it. Um, but if you just get it because, you know, because, well, well, because you're like a citizen of a particular country that has that scheme, then it's a sort of, you know, some people will say, but somebody has got to pay for this. Uh, and then there's this, you know, so, so there, there is this, there's this problem. So, um, yeah. um, what, but there is obviously a line of argument that I think could be quite powerful. Oh. And that's this idea of sort of saying, well, actually, this is about supporting the hard pressed consumers. Um, and um, because, you know, like yeah. I'd say, like, you, you have some kind of st statistic um, like on the website, like as part of your uh, as, part, as part of your paper um, that sort of shows the distribution um, of, yeah. of, 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 of benefit. And I think what we see there is, is that there, there's more than 50 percent of the population would yeah. actually have a net gain from this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, 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 so I think that's a really interesting case so to say, well, this is support the, the majority of consumers. Are increasingly hard pressed to keep up with energy prices, to keep up with, well, any carbon-heavy service, um, and um, and and so so this is a way of countering that. There are actually examples, uh, real-world examples in uh, in Canada. Um, I think it's particular British Columbia, and most recently in Austria. You know, there are early pilots, or I mean, it's not we couldn't say it's it's uh, it's pilots because uh, as a concept. Um, uh, there are, in, in, for example, in Canada, it has worked for, for, for many years now, but the, say, full-fledged um, impl uh, implementation in combination with a high carbon pricing, maybe this, this needs to be uh, uh, developed still, but I find it difficult to imagine how a high carbon price should be acceptable, you know, without, without a climate income, right? So thinking about feasibility, political feasibility, there's and social justice, because yeah. and you know, justice, yes, as, as we said, because yeah. obviously the the the, 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 the the tap would be picked up on the whole. The the, the the lion's share of the tap would be picked up by by by, by hardworking people who basically just about make ends meet, and they now have to basically uh, 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 sh shoulder that. So I think yeah, it's very it's a very hard sell, and it's not free income, right? So because you have the uh, price increases on the other hand, and the um, you know, it's, it's but more importantly, uh, it's the it's incentive function that you, um, you, the better, you know, the more you change and shift your consumer behavior, the more you have left uh, in the end as a net gain, right? So this is also another effect. Initially, when I heard about it, I, I wasn't sure whether it's, um, uh, whether it's not simply, you know, exchanging one for the other, what's the big incentive for households, but you have to take into account that it's also about shifting the competitive landscape and making low carbon, you know, climate solutions much more yeah. attractive. And yes. uh, so, so this is, I think, a key uh, mechanism that's working in the background. Um, while you have, yeah. I tell you, I mean, of course, one of the big challenges is, is if you take the universal basic income, and we have this in, in Germany at the moment, you can run a major pilot. 
because you can just give like 150 people uh, a universal basic income for the next three years and see whether they turn into lazy couch potatoes or whether they use that money and that freedom to do something really worthwhile that also benefits society. We can, and, and these pilots are now taking place on the universal basic income side to sort of see what how, how does that play out if, if we do that with a carbon uh, uh, dividend or a climate income. That's not really possible, it's is it? Same. You can't really yeah. run it. You don't have, you can't have a dry run. You have to go for the real thing from the start because unless you raise carbon prices, um, you, you know, you, 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 there's no justification for the, uh, the, the carbon dividend. Yeah. And that makes it difficult, no? And uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's quite different from another. I mean, there are similarities, but uh, you're not talking about replacing income for work. You know, it's really adding to the annual income that households generate anyways. Um, and also it's a temporary measure, you know, so ideally, um, as, as we manage to decarbonize our societies, uh, the revenues generated will also become lower, you know, even though we, on the other hand, you have higher, higher price levels, that's right, income, but we have also, uh, an ideal, it will converge against zero again, diminishing returns, I think they call yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, and so when we are successful, we don't have to, you know, we don't need to pay uh, climate income anyways. And the demand, and what I also find important about it is that we don't uh, underestimate the need to work on the demand side as well, you know, and uh, uh, it's where a majority of, of emissions are also uh, generated. And um, uh, in this way, I, I totally agree with, with uh, Saul Griffith, you know, there's so much more that we, as, as consumers, house, you know, households, as house owners, but also, and this is another challenge, maybe in particular in Germany, um, is there's not a high uh, share of, of house ownership compared to like the US, you know, in comparison, it's, it's lower. And we need to overcome this, you know, uh, structural um, incentive uh, problem that you have when you are a house owner that is, you know, and on the other hand, when you're just renting uh, an apartment, uh, you have less incentives to invest in, you know, decarbonizing uh, your, 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 your lifestyle through choices that affect the building, you know, heating system and so on. Um, so this is maybe one thing on the structural side. And there are solutions to it too. You know, there's, for example, a scheme where you offer temperature as a service, you know, uh, as a, as a um, uh, landlord, right? And so uh, when you make investments that save you, uh, costs, uh, you also have incentive to do so because you benefit from them. Uh, on the other hand, as a, as, a, as a consumer, you save money by just using less, you know, heating, for example, um, or otherwise it just stays the same for you. You don't even notice that the source of heating is going to become different. You know, so these are, but these are peculiar challenges in Germany. Uh, I mean, in, in a way, what makes it such a pressing problem is, is that if you don't get a handle on 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 sort of runaway climate change uh, and if we don't really find a way of significantly speeding up decarbonization which is at the heart of this um we, we end up in a world that nobody really wants to live in and the window is closing so this is you know we, we we can talk about this you know until the cows come home but at the end of the day you know the, the window is closing and uh, when we set up reboot 2030 we were in we did this in the belief that we actually have this 10 year 10 year window till around about 2030 where a lot of decisions including how we handle climate change in very clear and effective ways uh, is sort of instituted yeah. now um in my experience unless there is a 
an organization like a structure or you know like um mm. ideally like some official you know state-based uh, instrument um these things they they will be debated there'll be kind of academic conferences there will be all these kinds of things but to move from idea to implementation is a huge challenge now how to me, this sounds like a really interesting way also for consumers to actively participate in decarbonization. Now, um, how do we move from idea to implementation? Uh, you know, what can I do? What can you do? What can other people do? Organizations like Finio, what can organizations like Greenpeace, what can unions, trade unions, what can political parties do to get us there? What is the actual trajectory mm. we're looking at to operationalizing this idea? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think there's a, a challenge that has uh, many different uh, layers, you know, and the root causes of uh, why we haven't uh, done so earlier, um, you know, are, are actually quite interesting to explore, but also uh, can be frustrating, you know, to see, um, I think first of all, it's important to to realize that market technology forces are on, on our side. They're not fast enough right now, uh, but uh, uh, it's it's going in the right direction. And we need to we need this additional push. But the good thing about it is that um, there's actually quite uh, a lot to gain as well, you know, from from investing in into a transition. And the other, on the other hand, there is. Um, I think a, a misperception with regard to the climate damages and risks, especially among policymakers, is uh, there's uh, just um, uh, I'm reading a lot about also climate economics, and there's been a, a critic by by Nicholas Stern about how climate economics needs to be updated because they underestimated you know various aspects of of climate risk and damages. So we need this kind of um, awareness building effort to make um, steep carbon pricing schemes more acceptable. We need to uh, uh, promote awareness about, uh, you know, climate income as a way to ensure that it's also politically feasible. Um, I still assume that that the policymakers, majority of them, is may have not heard about it yet. You know, so this is what uh, Citizens Climate Lobby is trying to change by talking directly with policymakers. So. Um, training uh, citizens to become lobbyists, you know, for this cause, uh, which is, I think, a powerful um, intervention that's needed and uh, needs to scale as well. Um, uh, it's it's a matter of time. We need to accelerate it somehow. I see. Uh, so once we uh, create, I think there's a certain threshold. You know, uh, I think there's studies that show once like 20, 25 percent of the population uh, become become activists are convinced of an idea it starts to spread you know but before that you don't notice uh, much in terms of change oh, i thought that threshold is much lower than that uh, 3.5 percent for, uh, for it's there's a threshold of 3.5 percent for non-violent civil resistance you know to change systems okay that i thought it was much changed. lower I, the, the figure yeah. i heard was around about eight percent but that's probably uh, okay yeah this is it's interesting too it's fascinating literature in any way anyway i've, I've seen 20 percent. but so this is a critical mass that you need to reach and once you have reached it things start to fall into place uh, more quickly. The other aspect I think is interesting about the uh, climate income and, and carbon pricing in combination is you could start within a region, you know, you don't have to start globally, um, but over time you can expand. And when you start within a region, of course, you have to prevent carbon leakage. 
yeah. you would do so through um, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, that, which is the Could you very, very, that's, that's really important. Could you very yeah. briefly explain what a sort of a, a carbon border adjustment, what, how, what that looks like? Because that's, I think that's a critical issue. Yeah. So in its simplest terms, uh, you try to level the playing field, you know, for, for exporters uh, and for importers, you know, do you want to, want to avoid that uh, the carbon pricing that you charge within the region leads to substantial uh, disadvantages competitively. And on the other hand, that importers, you know, benefit from, from having no, no carbon pricing, right? So you, you raise tariffs at the border or you provide uh, incentives for, for exporters. So, so what that, what that, yeah. that's right. So what that really means, I mean, within the European context, we have got the single market. So you wouldn't really be able to do this or it would be very difficult to do this, say, only in Germany. So, oh, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so we are looking, we're looking, when we're talking about regions, we're talking yeah, trading Europe. blocks. Yes, so yes. we're talking uh, probably NAFTA, we're talking probably European Union, we're talking... But the, this already makes it a lot more manageable, doesn't it? Because now we can say, well, okay, we can lobby the European Commission, we can lobby the European Parliament, we can use mechanisms, um, you know, like citizen initiatives and all the rest that already exist at a European level uh, to, to raise awareness, but also to kind of force politicians' hands. Yeah. And once you start, and uh, maybe you form coalitions, climate clubs, for example, but more regions also have an incentive to start raising carbon prices too, you know, to um, uh, manage carbon border adjustments. I mean, the, the challenge is, of course, designing the mechanism well, and uh, there's still challenges about, you know, um, the quality of data that is maybe needed to, to find fair adjustments uh, and needs to be WTO compliant, you know, but it's all, uh, as, as far as I can tell, uh, doable. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, I think this is one one big advantage of being able to start within the region and then expand from there on. And there's also there's when you, when you sort of said the fine tuning and the kind of the fairness argument of finding. Yeah. I, I kind of buy this argument to a certain extent, but if you said that against the fairness issues compared to future generations, who don't do anything, they kind of pale into insignificance. So yes, there are definitely fairness issues, and this thing would need fine tuning. There's no question about this. But to sort of to use that as, a, as an argument for not getting going, uh, yeah. and, and I'm, I know you're not saying this, yeah. but this could, could come yeah. from the kind of the, the climate yeah. cynics. They sort of they, they yeah. would kind of really zoom into the detail and say, well, what about this? What about that? And the, the delay strategy, you know. Uh, and yeah, you could argue that within the context of uh, such a massive market failure that we are seeing at the you know uh, uh, at the this welfare, this utility of future generations, uh, it's really difficult to argue for market neutrality and uh, you know uh, non-competitive or uh, market distortions when the market is so distorted already. And you can also, I think, it's really not not it's difficult to argue that. Uh, you know, climate policies, uh, in particular, like like fiscal spending, would be a burden for future generations when the actual burden is being created through uh, the market failure that we are currently not addressing. That's right, and I mean, I mean, one of the big challenges I've had with any complex problem, not 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 just climate change, is that it's very hard to sort of see. Um, you know, because there, there's sort of there's sort of a threshold, isn't there? We all of a sudden make real progress, but to, to, to get to that threshold, it can take years, and there's so much resistance at so many levels and uh, and in so many different ways that it can seem quite hopeless. And there is this kind of idea: if you can't measure the progress you make, mm. you're going to get to this point where you're going to say, oh, "Well, we're not getting on with this." We're not. Uh, so, so yeah. how can we? 
you know, are they, how, how could we kind of in a way create a, a mechanism, a system where we kind of find a way of saying, okay, this is where we stand with, you know, carbon pricing and with a climate income right now. Um, and we're still this much away from actually implementation, but let's define some, you know, heard like some, some landmarks, some, some stages that we need to hit to get closer. Um, are there any such sort of positions that we would have to reach or how could we if you try to mobilize because it's an all or nothing isn't it it's like until it's done nothing is done uh and so so the, the, the question is how can you kind of break this down into smaller bits one aspect of course we've already discussed is that we can have border adjustments so we can already make this a much more manageable problem by saying someone actually no we don't have to wait for the chinese we we can do this you know we, and we don't have to wait for the americans we we can do this in europe and if they want to keep trading with us, then they have to go through that um, border adjustment mechanism, and they will then trade with us on equal terms again. Um, so we can, but, but there must be other kind of ways in which we can sort of say, this is the way we make this manageable, and this is how we can measure our progress a step at a time that we move closer. Can you think of any ways and strategies that we could develop uh, to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was... Uh... Uh, initially thinking about the uh, probability of certain policies to be implemented, you can argue that it's becoming more and more probable. You know, it's difficult to quantify, of course, uh, um, but the challenge is that uh, we, we spoke about this, this uh, uh, tipping point threshold. You know, once we reach a certain critical mass, the, the, there's a jump in the probability of, of certain policies to be implemented, for example. Uh, if you look at the... Um, uh, but I think what we can look at uh, more reasonably is the uh, uh, general population survey and how many of the, you know, uh, there's, you know, this, this framework, which is, which has the early adopters, the innovators, early adopters, the early majority, the late majority, right? Uh, it's it's um, uh, also comparable to this um, uh, survey that is conducted by, I think, by Yale, by Yale Communication, you know, about the climate awareness and how that shifts over time. So when we see an early majority becoming more and more, you know, uh, activists and starting to become innovators, right, and reaching that stage, um, and then we can, we can monitor. I think this is actually an interesting metric to follow. Um, another one could be you know, if you look at, at the uh, European uh, uh, emissions trading uh, system, uh, carbon price is, is is reaching higher levels. It's getting closer to the social cost of carbon. You know, which is um, estimated. It did various estimates, but for I think um, it's safe to assume between 100 and 200 euro per ton at least. You know, something like that. We're getting there. You know. We have to just keep in mind that with emissions trading in particular, there are also free allowances and the scope is not complete. There's a limited scope, you know, so it's not reflecting the average price of carbon emissions in the EU yet. Uh, but still, uh, we see we see progress and I think there should be some, um, you know, once we once we reach a certain uh, threshold, it could also become, you know, change very quickly. So, so we have this uncertainty about when do we reach the threshold where things start to change very quickly. We just know that we are getting closer. <laughs> you know? There is, there is yeah. sort of, a, there, there, there is kind of, um, I think two levels where we, where we could sort of kind of begin to measure or think about measuring progress because I think this is going to be really, really important to do that. If you don't do that we're really kind of flying blind. Uh, so I, I think there's a real need and also that'll again have its own momentum. So if you had a website that would basically kind of give the 
these in a way quantifies them like a you know like a countdown thing you know how far are we away from from that um and and you know obviously that could be refined but, but it would be quite a strong I, I mean the other the other just to kind of uh, say that is is there's at the european level um you know there there's like among sort of european federalists and and kind of also within the commission i believe there's a kind of a debate around european taxation um, that that the, that the Commission or the European Union uh, should be able to tax to, to generate an income. I mean, like for the EU ever to become a, a fully fledged sort of federation, that would be one of the next really important steps. And different taxes are in discussion here. Uh, one, of course, is the digital taxes. You're, you're probably aware of, uh, but they would be taxing bytes. Another is the token tax and the transactions tax, which is also uh, being debated that this could be would have to be implemented at the European level. Uh, then there could be a carbon tax, and this is where you know where you know we could lead back to our uh, discussion mm. here. Mm. And so, and and these discussions are happening at a European level, and there are networks who are pushing for this for their own reasons. They sort of they see the, the the benefit of having this extra funding to do stuff. Now, if you had a a European uh, carbon uh, 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 dividend, think about this because you have in take take the Greeks or. The, the, the Bulgarians uh, and compare them to the Germans in terms of their income and also their carbon footprint, of course. Yeah. So when you're when you're talking distribution within Germany, then you're talking, you know, like somebody who might be sort of aufstocken, like somebody who receives maybe like, you know, hearts fear in one form or another as, as the poor person. But if you look at the sort of European level, then you're looking at a much greater kind of income differential or if you like sort of poverty gap between yeah. rich and poor. And yeah. this could be one way also to bring Europe closer together because it, it would have another powerful effect that the high carbon producing parts of Europe, like Germany, France, Northern Italy, um, they, you know, they would also be paying the lion's share uh, of that, of that, of that, uh, of that carbon pricing. Um. Yeah, and particularly of Poland, you know, Eastern European countries too. Uh, the challenge is though that uh, each country has a lot of autonomy still, uh, or, you know, the, the European Union is not uh, um, as cohesive yet and depends a lot on on all members member states agreeing and uh, you know but um, i think it's a, a structural challenge uh, we you know sort of need to uh, manage well you know to to get to where we need to be as right now it's this is uh, it's an obstacle you know uh, to to european um, uh, implementation so member states uh, uh, can you know maybe they can uh, and be encouraged, you know, to to use carbon uh, price revenues uh, for for climate dividend or climate income, um, uh, but they cannot be mandated to do so. You know, no, no, no. Well, well, you, you, this is a thing. So this would be obviously this would require European legislation and this mm. would require buy-in of European member states. Mm. But I think what what what, what we are seeing, and, and of course, you, one could develop a kind of a, a European argument that benefits to poorer European countries, mm. specifically yeah. in, in Eastern Europe and sort of the Mediterranean uh, Europe. Uh, the benefits to them would also be significantly greater mm. uh, than to the rich countries. Yeah. Um, and and what, what what you do find is that those poorer or you know countries also tend to be on the whole when you think about poland the czech republic and so forth they also tend to be um if you like the more conservative or you know uh, but but they the, the benefits there possibly outweigh the cost significantly so um 
what I find the problem here often is, is that we have so many interrelating um, interdependent problems that we can't really have a carbon pricing regime just in Germany because of the single European market. But if you want to have it at a European level, then we're basically opening another can of worms where we have to deal with all these other issues. So, but, but this is the world we live in, isn't it? So, I mean, I think when you, when, when you are projecting sort of like a sort of a trajectory forward, if you sort of say, well, carbon pricing and very closely linked to that a carbon dividend or climate income uh, it really is a crucial element uh, and a very effective element within the kind of decarbonizing toolkit um, then um, the, the question then becomes um, you know what, what is the most effective point where we have the most leverage uh, is it by going after the European Commission? Is it basically kind of drive Europe forward to further integration so that these things become possible? Or do we kind of, in a way, do it the other way around? That instead of saying we're focusing on, you know, the, the yeah. carbonized decarbonization and then that necessitates a further integration of Europe. From what side? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that for now, I mean, as long as the carbon uh, price is relatively low, uh, uh, that means that the other um, regulatory uh, you know, interventions need to be that much stronger. You know, actually, if you think about uh, public spending or uh, phase-out mandates, uh, they need to be stronger. The you know, uh, if, if as long as carbon pricing is too low. Uh, but um, uh, building on the what's what we currently have, the emissions trading system, uh, expanding that, you know, strengthening it. Um, uh, maybe when we speak about uh, carbon tax, on top of it, you know, uh, trying to. Uh, uh, there are different ways to, to get to increased uh, carbon prices. And there are other ways, like uh, if you think about uh, what a ban is actually, you know, banning certain products after a certain period, like in five or 10 years, we have this phase out mandate. It's like an infinite carbon price, right? In a way, right? And so uh, there's a, a, a spectrum of, of a possible you know, uh, activities. But I wanted to uh, mention, coming back to this earlier question about how to track progress, I think certainly uh, looking at, on the one hand, uh, uh, how, how in, in media, news media, in social media, certain topics are being discussed with the sentiment, you know, and the frequency of, of, of mentionings or articles that are being published is interesting as well. To and uh, but in particular the kind of political parties that make it the government, you know, as <laughs> after every election, this is the most crucial perhaps enabler. This is why, why, why uh, the next couple of, you know, uh, elections are going to be so important, you know. Well, the They're next two elections, space really, when you think about yeah. it. Yeah. Because beyond that, we're beyond 2030, so yeah. there's only yeah. two more elections yeah. within yeah. that 10 year window. Um, and, and that's going to take us up to, uh, you know, uh, 2032. Um, so the majority so yes, of seats, you know, looking at the how the seats are being distributed uh, within certain within the political spectrum is maybe one of the other important, uh, you know. So, uh, so, um, uh, Youngjin, if, if I would invite you back to have another reboot uh, debate, like, say, in six months time, four, five, six months time. Um, of course, one of the problems at the moment and these these are, this is a huge problem and not, not you know, for mankind, uh, is that we are moving at a glacial pace. We're moving at such a slow pace. Uh, I mean, if you compare where we've been at COP25 and where we're now at COP26, you know, uh, you kind of wonder what happened in between, you know. Um, and so, you know, what realistically can we expect if we had another talk in four or five months what could we realistically expect to have changed 
or, or how can we move the debate on, realistically speaking, within that kind of time frame? You know, given that we only have 10 years to bring about these changes, six months is actually a significant period of time um, when you think about it in those terms. Mm. So the question is, is what, 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 what do you think, uh, if we were to have another debate in six months or five months time, what, what do you think we'd be picking this conversation? Would we have the same conversation again or would we have moved on in certain respects? It's oh, a good question. <laughs> I, uh, initially, when you mentioned six months, I was also wondering, you know, thinking perhaps in one year, two years time, maybe there's a significant difference to, to see. But, uh, well, um, I can only be hopeful. I mean, the, uh, uh, we have uh, already, uh, you know, for example, the, the latest uh, report by the IEA, World Economic Auto 2021, was certainly different, very different in quality and substance from, from earlier reports, you know, if you look two years, three years back, right? And so um, I'm hoping for a, a significant shift in the uh, level of awareness uh, within, uh, you know, uh, large shares of the population, but in particular political leadership. Um, I'm not sure whether we will, we will see, see this. I mean, on the other hand, we have a new coalition being formed in Germany, <laughs> still yet to be seen, you know? I mean, this is the, the significant event perhaps that will distinguish today from, from you know, the six months ahead. Uh, maybe uh, there are certain other signposts uh, that, that might happen, but I would feel uh, more confident if we spoke in a year's time to say, you know, there should be visible signs of progress. Hopefully. But what gives you that, that confidence? Yeah. Because if we would have spoken at COP25, uh, um, you would have probably sort of said in four years' time, you know, uh, huh, and, and was... look where we are. What gives you the confidence <laughs> that if you don't achieve something in the next six months, we will achieve it in a year? I, I, so, I mean, in terms of um, uh, changing, uh, you know, we are shift, we're also, I mean, we're talking about uh, paradigm shifts that are taking place. And uh, uh, I, I, I just have a feeling, you know, this is not empirical data to, to pick it up, but uh, six months is short, uh, one year is, uh, you know, I think within a few years, this is maybe the time frame where, or, it's speculative, you know, maybe well, this kind of, we, we were talking about this tipping point threshold. When once it's re reached, you know, things will start to, you know, change quickly. Uh, so to, to use it, to, to use a cliche, you know, to use a cliche, this whole thing about green shoots, you know, like, you know, there has to be a spring before there can be a harvest, you know, you things have to come, ah, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so, you know, I, I totally accept that we won't have significant change in six months' time. But what are the indicators we're looking for? What, 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 what are this? Is get back to the whole notion of progress. Yeah. What, what are the things that we're going to track? Are we just going to close our eyes and open them again in a year's time and see whether things look different, or are we kind of actually tracking any indicators to see um, that, that that things are moving in the right direction? I mean, if you take the, the, the current pandemic, imagine we wouldn't be doing any testing, and imagine you know we wouldn't have any we wouldn't collect any data on on on, on you know on the way that the pandemic uh, uh develops 
Mm. How would we know what what's what and how things have developed and how this wave is different from the first or the second wave? Um, and so, in in a way, I think what would be really interesting is is if we come back and have another talk in six months or five months time, and we think about these indicators. You know, we basically can't rather sort of say, well, in six months time, we're going to know it's all going to be better, but we've got to think about how we're going to measure progress over the next 10 years. You know, you know, how, because this is going to be such a crucial thing. There's a kind of a sort of a truism in management. What gets measured gets done. Yeah. And if we don't have anything to measure, um, you know, nothing is going to get done because there's no, no yeah. imperative. People will have to die on a large scale and then we're going to measure bodies piling up. So I'd much rather measure something else. Um, and wouldn't that be a kind of an interesting thing to do that, say, we say meet again in four, five, six months next spring. Um, and in the interim, we think about, you know, about progress, how we're actually going to basically, so that we don't have to repeat today's conversation. Indicators of can, progress. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the idea and I certainly like to, to think about it uh, until next time. There's one thought though that comes to mind there's also uh there need to be indicators of risk you know and of resistance uh, because yeah. uh, the this is the thing about the, the dynamic system the greater uh you know the signs of progress are the usually this resistance becomes uh, higher as well it's increasing uh, in a, you know uh, and we, we need to stay vigilant and we need to uh, uh, you know address uh, this we need to fight the resistance um so it's an, it's an ongoing struggle, um, but yeah. So it's, it's, it's we need more than just you know measures of progress. Yeah. The other thing is is like you know the, the other thing about indicators is that they are powerful political instruments. They can drive change. It's not only that they kind of have a motivational power in terms of telling people you know how they do, but it also has the the like on the other end of the scale this a similar impact that it sort of shows our politicians how. You know how you know how ineffective we are at the moment, and and it it, it gives us arguments. It gives us um, um, something you know to 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 make the case. No. Yeah, the, 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 you know, the, in the end, the final, the as, as you as we as we know, the indicator that matters is the uh, concentration of CO two in the atmosphere, right? Which is not changing, or it's global temperatures which are not changing. These are the final, you know, indicators in the end that that we try to influence. But in the interim, it's it's still very important to find the the social indicators of of social tipping points uh, that that are getting us there. And they, I just remember this is also an interesting paper. They came out on specifically social tipping points. You know, maybe you know what I what I mean. Uh, otherwise, I can send you a link to it. But it's uh, uh, you know important to keep that in mind as well. Yeah. So so shall we shall we kind of maybe part on that note that we're planning another uh, sort of uh, dialogue in four to six months time, and we will think about you know about measurement. We will think about how to measure progress and also failure. Um, so that we get a much clearer sense, like a compass, of where we are and, and, and how we move forward. And something that we could develop and refine over the next five to ten years so that we have that as a guide going forward. Because then we can clearly measure against those indicators. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So, sure. I mean, I'm always interested in general about... Um, uh, measuring and managing the impact of uh, at the systemic level, at the systems level of systems change, you know, of systemic impact too. I mean, there's these also nuances and differences between um, systems change and systemic impact. Doesn't mean the same necessarily. 
um, but it's a it's a topic in general that is currently um, I think becoming more and more important in the in the impact measurement and management world. And there's another set of measurements I think, which you know, given given your job, uh, would be something we could include in this. And this is kind of measuring investment um, in, in 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 kind of technologies that would drive change in the directions we want to see things go. So 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 you know, in a way, because obviously that may also be well and well be an indicator of 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 of, of tipping points and, and and how how things go. Um, uh, Youngin, thank you very, very much. It's been it's been very, very interesting. And of course, as expected, there wasn't a big bang solution, or you know, we haven't got there. We're at the very beginning of a of, of, of a process of a transformation from a sort of a carbon heavy to a carbon light or a decarbonized world. And negative um, emissions and, afterwards, yeah. This is yeah. to forget we need to. And, and we're at the beginning of that journey, and and so hopefully we'll have many more of these uh, discussions. Um, and I think as a, as a first step, it would be great to talk about talk about measurement, about talk about indicators next time we meet. Um, and of course, somebody like you who is very much coming from the kind of academic field and from the research field, it would be a very appropriate conversation to have. Yeah, I would like that. Thank you very much, Nico. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, well, thank you very much for, uh, you know, engaging with this process. Thank you ever so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.